0: I've been thinking about this lately This is what I suppose Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org I realize So I'm on my knees for understanding The more the world I see, the more I see Leave off in but I'm no diamond ring i got a lot to learn, so I'm Welcome to Calvary. You know, one of the things I always say about Calvary, you know, uh, most Calvaries, you know, I haven't gone to all Calvaries, but, you know, it's like going to your parents' house. You're going to get fed. Whether you like it or not. You know, you're not going to have a snack. You're going to get fed. And, you know, there's, like I said, there's no... No small meals, really. There shouldn't really be any small meals in our lives. Snacking is basically not very healthy, you know, and it hinders our appetite. So I hope that you're in the mind at least to have something quite substantial, at least in my consideration it's substantial. Um, The subject matter, again, is something that kind of through the summer period, I had a really good opportunity to sit down with a brother I really love at some point and, you know, and generally over the issues of, you know, finding the will of God, which is a normal conversation you can have with somebody, um, especially if you're involved in the church, at often intervals. And, um, you know, as normal, our texts, you know, as I, you know, went to go and have this conversation, um, you know, you reach for a very common text that most people do and, It was a real blessing because, like you said, it really kind of blew up in my mind to such an extent that, you know what, um, when the opportunity came to actually teach, I said, you know, what, let me do this because I think this will help people. You know, I don't think it's going to stop me having these conversations, but at least I've said and I've said my piece at a point where I have had the opportunity to as many as I probably won't speak to here, you know, in the time of my life. So um, the text... In question is is Romans 12 1 to 8 and obviously the subject matter is knowing the will of God you know the title um, which I've wrestled with through <laughs> various ways um, but I've, I've arrived at the the somewhat abstract title of of civilians soldiers and mercenaries you know and We'll, we'll get there. Hopefully it will make more sense as we go through this. And uh, yeah, all is good. All right. Verse 1 of Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, and acceptable, and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace among, I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering, he who teaches in teaching He who who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. You know, one of the things we find with the word of God, I mean, I teach from a point of view, my understanding from a point of view is that the word of God is authoritative. And I can't take it for granted that as many as are alive today have that that same approach. I believe the word of God is, is there for encouragement, for reproof, for rebuke. And for all of us, it's something that we can kind of come together on and say, well, look, we're all starting from the same page. And it's the word of God is the only thing that gives us an equal footing so that we can obviously make our arguments through there rather than through our own opinions. You know, so I hope you can understand from the point of view which I teach this that it will be beneficial to you, at least if you know where I'm coming from. The context of Romans 12 is that it's the beginning, but chapter 12 is the beginning of Paul's breakdown of the application of everything that he has just said in the previous 11 verses, or 11 chapters. And he's initially talking about the salvation that we have. He talks about the history of salvation from the Garden of Eden right up until where we are now as Christians in the time recently of Christ departing from the earth and obviously Christianity is starting to flourish. So he charts that history, um, the history of, of, of mankind, the history of Israel, and even his own personal history. And so we come at an interesting place because he is now trying to tell people what do we do with this salvation? What do we do with grace that God has given us to be saved? You know, um, I've just been blessed with the, the, the meetings this week because they have helped to some, what clarify my position, clarify why this is so important. You know, the grace of God. I mean, you know, I was at Wednesday and, and Peter raised a, a, a comment um, about from, you know, a church father called Augustine. And it really helped me, and it was a benefit to me, because one of the things that Augustine said, he says that the, the grace of God gives us the ability to have a greater free will. And Romans so, so clearly clarifies this. Man genuinely... He stands in a position, Romans 7 is a great context for this, read it in your own time. You know, but Romans 7 gives us this brilliant picture of a man who is struggling to do the things that he really wants to do. He's there and he's like, I really would like to be a blessing, I would really like to go beyond just looking at myself. And so what he does is he says, you know, Lord help me, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And that's what Augustine is trying to get at. He's saying the grace of God gives us a whole new range of possibilities to our life that we never had before. And that's why Paul is saying if we take it for granted we have neglected a really great salvation. We have been saved for no reason other than to continue on in the original rebellion that we had. And hence the reason why we don't abuse the grace that God has given us it's not consistent with the the thoughts and the intents of a true believer our new dimension, the new world that has been opened up to us should be entered into boldly not just something for the starship enterprise to do but something for all of us to do a brave new world that is now available to everybody and so Chapter 12 begins an application. I love the way it begins because it says, I beseech you. He doesn't say, I command you. I compel you. He uses a very human term and says, I just urge you guys. I just really would hope that you guys will take this on board. You know, Paul very often when he talks to his churches, specifically the ones that he has planted, he never planted the one at Rome. But when he talked to the Corinthian churches, he says, I could speak to you by commandment, but I won't. I'd much rather speak to you as somebody that has a relationship with you. And so he just said, you know what, just do this. Just do this. So he says, I beseech you, brethren. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. You know, when you look at the sacrifice, the sacrificial service, you know, how members were supposed, you know, members of Israel, that is, were supposed to conduct themselves in a temple that they gave themselves, they gave a sacrifice that was worthy. Now, obviously, we see that as a picture of Christ, but in the time, it was very important that you didn't just bring any and any sheep or goat or or cow. You had to bring the best that you had. Again, a great foreshadowing of the truths of the gospel in Jesus Christ. It was a picture of the spotless Christ coming, not worthy of dying, but dying, not worthy to die of the things that he was accused of. But he lays down his life. We're not supposed to give, you know, we're not supposed to think, you know what? Um, as it would have been maybe in the time of Israel, that, you know, look, oh, that, that goat just died. Ah, oh, that's great. We're going to take that one down to the temple today. You know, and you drag this dead goat and you go, ah, there we go. A living sacrifice. We see a picture of Isaac here, not just of Christ. That You know, Christ says, I, I, I lay my life down. You don't take it from me, I give it to you. And that is the context that Paul begins the application. He says that, for yourself, lay your life down. In other words, you're giving it up. Sometimes we come at the end of our tethers to the Lord and we have nothing much to offer than our raggedy selves. And the truth is, as we come, I mean, you know, I, you know take a, take an, you know, a, a situation like within, like within the military or the police, where somebody is brought to a position where they are now in a a deadlock situation. But one has the advantage. And normally an ultimatum is given, you know, look, surrender or we're going to kill all of you. We're going to come in with extreme measures. Right now we're just trying to be, you know, and that's the, the whole idea is that if you surrender at a point where you've got the ability to surrender and admit defeat, and say, I'm going to lay down my arms. As opposed to going into and going for the full wrath of whatever force that stands before you. And that's exactly a picture of the wrath of God. We surrender at a time when it is convenient to do so. We don't surrender at a later point when we have no other options. And so it begins with the type of surrender that God wants us to have, which is lay down your life while you have the choice to do so. Holy and acceptable. Give God, basically, the best of you. Solomon even says this, it you know, comes to the end of Ecclesiastes, where he says, young people, give your life now. While you're, while you're not all old and raggedy. You know, he gives this illusion of everything falling off. And you're at the end of your life and it's like, ah, you know. Let me give this. I mean, it's not ideal. Praise God for people who give their lives at the last ebb. But you know what? Paul's recommendation is give your life while you have something to Give. He sums up the tail end of verse 1 with, which is your reasonable or logical service? You know, Paul's a learned man. And he is living in a very Greek world where logic was a big deal. You know, everything had to make sense. You know, I don't kind of subscribe to the kind of historical point of view that people had a a less dignified way of living years back. People have always had the same agenda. People have always fought the same way that we think today. They had just had different ways of describing it. And in so many ways, their ways were superior. Less distractions as we have in modern society because our technology makes us think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. You know, we think because we turn on the tap and water comes out that we're better than people have to go and walk a mile. And sometimes a historical point of view makes us think that our technology has given us an advantage over them. But our lives are lived in our minds. And their minds are as valued as ours. So logic is a big deal. And Paul is saying... Having said all this about the history of salvation, to this point, everything I said, says that it should be logical for you now to do this. Not optional, logical. Reasonable. You're not doing God any favours. You're not a better man, a better woman for having done that. It's reasonable. Jesus has the same thing when he talks about the servant having done what they're supposed to do and then kind of sits down at the end of the day and the master just says, the master doesn't praise him for having done what they're supposed to do. It is a courtesy the master extends to say thank you. You're not holding it. But Paul's idea is that it's reasonable to do this. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, it's strange because I think the first, all the verses are interconnected. Paul starts at the great demand, and then as he's kind of scaling down for each chapter, for each verse, he's now buffeting or buffering up what he previously said. Now, we all know that one of the ways that we can give ourselves is not necessarily willingly, but in resignation. But I've got to do it. I'm a Christian. And so we can give our bodies to something, but obviously even by our very own expressions and even by the way we sit in our minds, we really don't care for the decision that we have before us because we want really to make a better impression than to really be changed in the way that we think and feel about things. And so Paul buffers what he had previously said by saying now be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So someone can give their body, but mentally just not be in that decision. But he says, be mentally there too. So he's not letting anybody off. Don't just come and be kind of like seem to be involved. Be engaged mentally in the process of being a believer. Saved by God's grace with a whole new set of, Possibilities in your life that you can now no longer live just for yourself but you can actually live to a purpose outside of yourself which is why we're really made being conformed is to just continue to do exactly what you were doing before to have the exact same ideas to think exactly the same way but it's leading on to so that you may know one of the big issues within church today is that people feel weak because they don't know anymore what God really is doing in their lives. They struggle to deal with, I'm just not sure anymore. Hebrews tells us that doubt is the biggest issue that a believer will face, anybody will face. They doubt, is, is there a God? They doubt, is he involved in our lives? But as we go further down, we're going to find that there's no point digging for specifics in our lives without being embraced of the general purpose of God's life, or God's will for your life. There's no point trying to say, I want to know what God has for me in this situation, this particular situation, which I'm engaged in, that I'm interested in, Without really being fully engaged with what God really wants to do on a whole, we want to pick and choose the bits where we get God involved. Because the truth is, is that we've run out of ideas, and we've run out of our steam, and we're like, you know, and we normally come to that point, which is where this all began. Lord, I don't know what to do. What's your perfect will? Two roads before me. How do I choose? You have to be. Cho- you have to choose by being fully engaged with what God is fully engaged in. We come down to um, come down to verse three. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. I want to connect verse 1, 2, and 3. I think primarily what really gave me a, a, a burst to teach this was the fact that what I normally kind of disconnected, I could actually connect in one continuous form, And this is why often it's said that the breaks within the Bible, the chapters and the paragraphs and the breaks and paragraphs, don't often help us. Because normally we have a translator who thinks very differently to how maybe the original writer was thinking. And so we're not necessarily helped, but it's good if the Lord and the Spirit of God, which teaches beside me, beside anyone that we listen to, us how to properly engage in the Word of God and the Word of Truth. And so he says, for I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So therefore he's like saying, it's not about you. The general will of God and the specific will of God will never really be about who we are. And making a name for ourselves. Through the grace that has been given hmm. we never really fully understand the, the, the nature of what we're fighting against and I think that um, there's some great illustrations that can help us and it's kind of a long way around but at the same time it's the shortest way to the, to the truth <sighs> that I will go on The autonomy of man, man wanting to be able to choose and to be in a world which they create, is really what this is about. I don't say that as some kind of new revelation or the key revelation. You go right back to Genesis 3, and I have not got the ability to go back there and kind of break this down, so I'm going to kind of do this in the quickest way possible. The nature of man's rebellion that will help us to understand these first three verses is based on how we think about ourselves. Um, I don't know if anybody who's that, you know, has seen this movie called The Truman Show, but this is my quickest way of doing it. It it's a, it's a movie about a man who is created within a world by a producer, and he's grown, up, he's grown up in that world. It's the only world he has ever known. He is filmed 24-7, and his life is a show. That everybody outside of that world watches and are fully engaged in. And he is a phenomenon. And he is in very much the child of this producer, though he is not his actual child. Now, it breaks down at various points, but like I said, you get an understanding of what autonomy is. Truman, through a woman who is involved in the show is told that this is all a facade in in a short way. And he starts to discover that the world that he is in is really only a world within a bigger world. And Truman's desire is to break free into the real world and be truly free. The tragedy of this movie is, and I don't think it's a bad movie at all, is that we root for Truman to be free. He should live in a world, he should be free to make his own decisions. He should be free of this producer who is portrayed in a very obsessive manner, to be so intrinsically involved in his life. Live your own life. Break free. At the final confrontation when Truman is about to leave, he is told and directly speaks to the creator, the producer of the show, and he says, I am the creator of a TV show. But the revealing fact is he begins with, I am the creator, and then he pauses. The movie is about the escape from Eden in a general sense, whether it was the intention to produce it as such, but it was promoting an idea that is... Familiar to us all, and that's why, in a sense, the movie, if you, you know, it really engages the human soul. We long for that kind of freedom. One of the things that the creator of the show tells him is that in that world that you're going to go into, I cannot protect you really anymore. You are outside of my providence. Everything in your life I have orchestrated to protect you and to preserve you. Believe it or not, we are in a similar show. We play before angels and the hosts of heaven. Read Job 1. That's why I said my approach is always very direct. I believe the word of God to be true. Job 1 sees human lives being played out. And the heavenly hosts watch as God makes his point through us. And Satan challenges that. And he says, no. I want them to be like me. I want them to break free of, my, of your control, God. If you let go of them, they will fail you. Some do, but some don't. They do not fail God. God holds them, preserves them. Even when he seemingly lets go of them in the material world, they still continue to trust him. So this issue of man's autonomy is played out with, let us go into the real world where when we really think about it, we have got no clue. Adam and Eve were in no idea of what the world... I mean, the truth is, is that, as Satan did say through the serpent, was quite true. There is a world outside of this world where you could be equal to God. There was a lie. You break free into that world, it will be Hell. So when we live in this world with sickness, pain, broken relationships, natural disasters, whatever you can think of, this is us living outside of the providential will that God has created and he says, I am the producer of your life, stay in here and you will be safe. And so we're now in the real world that Satan exposed us to that we believe is so great because it's the world that we want and it is hell. And we can't really stand it. But in a sense, going back in the box for so many is so intolerable. The general will of God is getting back into that providential will it's breaking back into eden so to speak now the effects of that world still affect our bodies but that's why i say in our minds and our hearts we are we remain unaffected by the events of the world as believers if we get back into that providential will of god all things work together for good in that respect But Jesus said the kingdom of God is already with us. He said it's no point just telling you it's a pie in the sky, something we're going to get to. Physically, we will get there. But Jesus said the kingdom of God is already here. It's already inside you. We can live that life of Eden in our hearts and minds today. Perfect Peace. No one should live to themselves. You know, there's a couple of great verses in Second um, Corinthians. I'm just going to share that with you. 5.15. And he died for all that those who live should no longer should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. There's a continuous point, but that's a highlight. And I want to go over to chapter 6 and verse 1 now. And it says, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So looking at these first three verses together, we start to see a picture of what Paul's ideas are as him as a person talking to a church. The church as it was historically and the church throughout all ages until now and beyond. Live no longer for yourselves. He's continuing a thought that even as Jesus compelled people, he said, you know what? If you try to live for yourselves, you will lose yourself. In the economy of the world, it seems so illogical. How on earth am I going to find myself by denying myself? It doesn't seem the quickest route to anything. In fact, what we're doing is we're telling people to turn back and go back to where they came from, to start at the beginning. But how can that be quick? To correct an error, you have to start again. You know, illustrations from, um, from comic books. Another bit of contextualization. You know, genuinely, in a comic book, we got the heroes and the villains. Villains normally live for themselves without any regard for anybody else. They're all about themselves. They're all about some lost cause that they think is right. Heroes live for the others, for the people they serve. Villains tend to live in derelict buildings and fortresses way away from society, away from being interfered with. Heroes tend to live amongst the people. Villains never change <laughs> out of their villain clothes. They remain villains to the to end. The but heroes normally put on civilian clothes so that they can work and be amongst the people that they serve. The hero and the villain are hyperboles of life of how people affect change in the world, for good or for bad, but ultimately for God's good. The hero, in order to be of maximum use, has to deny himself, has to run away from dinner engagements to save the world, has to break loyalties with friends and family, To serve the greater good. There is a picture there of what the human spirit aspires to. There are echoes within the saved and the unsaved of that which we really need. And the world really understands that they don't want heroes or a hero. They really want a world of heroes. Everybody's standing together. So the denial of the self, seeking to be back in God's providential will, knowing God's general will, where the specifics will be made very clear. As we continue on in that general will. Presenting our bodies into that mental decision that we've made to be who God wants us to be. To not rebel in our minds, not to rebel in our bodies and take ourselves away from the will of God. And that leads us into verse 4. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, and verse 5, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. First point, is the individual is not denied within the concept of God's body. He sees individuals in that way. Christianity is not socialism where the individual is absorbed into the collective and is just a part of the collective. The individual retains their uniqueness. In fact, the individual is guaranteed to find their uniqueness within the collective of the body. So they remain unique. And their uniqueness is invested in their individuality. But their purpose is in the collective, or within the body of Christ. So if you try to take your uniqueness and try to refine it and kind of market it for yourself and say, I just want to be unique, you will never be maximized in your purpose. Your purpose is therefore denied, and your uniqueness is therefore denied, and therefore you become dull. You become conforms. You know, I've never, I mean, you know, as a kind of a anecdote, I remember walking past the, um, the now-closed um, Astoria... And I remember seeing a bunch of goth kids out there, and um, you know, all dressed in black and pink hair, yellow hair, green hair. And I remember walking past this, and you know, and kind of having a vague notion of what this goth movement is about in terms of music and fashion. Is that it's like this non-conformity kind of group of people that says we're not, we're opting out of society. We're being unique, you know, middle-class children who just had enough of being told what to do. And just looking at them, I said, boy, what a way you all look the same. <laughs> and it was just so true. I just looked at them and they were all wearing pretty much the same sort of, they were wearing the black. And their desire to be unique has gone to the point where they've lost that uniqueness even more than if they were just a regular kid. I mean, you know, you're waking up as a goth kid, you've got no choice but to wear black. <laughs> oh dear. It was, it was funny and, you know, it was, it, it's always stayed with me and it just kind of was a parody of the world where, you know what, let's all be unique. This is the quickest way and then we end up just becoming a clone of everybody else. You know, the, you know, the adults are just the same. You know you, walk, you know, you watch London Bridge in the morning, everybody looks the same. That's what business is about. You've got to wear the uniform Christianity doesn't offer that kind of uniformity it doesn't demand that you wear similar things that's why one of the cultural clashes today is when people have tried to see Christianity trying to create it into a culture of its own by just using the culture that is already here on earth And so obviously it becomes about suits or it comes about, do you know what I mean, wearing white or all kinds of different things that people will say will be appropriate, which are taken from the society around them. But Jesus said, my church to the woman at the well is a spiritual movement. Our uniformity is in the spirit of truth. In other words, we have one doctrine, we have one belief, and uniformity is there in everything else It's all good. As long as that uniformity of word and purpose in the church is the same. So the uniformity is within the mind and not within the outward appearance. The pluralism of the world says think whatever you want to think it's all good, it's all true yet inside, outside, sorry Be like this to be acceptable. Be thin. If you're a woman, right? You know, be built as a guy to be accepted. Very reversed. Church says, let's all think the same. And let's all be unique outside in the way that we deliver. The world says, think whatever you think in your inner life. If you want to be beautiful, this is what you have to be. If you want to be accepted within certain regimes, you have to be like this on the outside. You see the dangers of allowing outside culture to affect the culture of the church? That's why emphasis is teach the word. Let's get our minds in the right place so that you can be who you've got to be, which is what the text is going to start to deal with. Now one of the things I've got to clarify in saying that is what is the church? Now many people get lost in this because the term is that we normally find ourselves in the church to mean the local body or what is termed as the visible church. I don't agree with that. I believe it is true to an extent but it's not true to the full extent of what I believe the church is. I believe in the invisible church. I believe in the invisible church to mean all those believers, all those who are in a local body, but also those who are yet to be in the local body. I believe it is the believers that have lived and the believers that are going to live. That is the church. Here we have also a clue to what God's purpose is in the earth. And that is by raising the issue of the church, the invisible church, the church that we see amongst ourselves, the church that we see in other churches, the people that we see who are close to coming to the Lord. The people that have lived, these people's biographies we read, who are encouraged by, who lived in ages past, This is the church. And God's purpose is to come back and get the church. Not to get individual believers. He's coming back for his bride, the church. That is God's will. Everything relates to the church. Everything else outside of the church is really just gravy. It doesn't really bother him as much as, is my bride getting ready? So God's general rule is invested in his people. And hence, his priority is the people of God, more than anything else. He says, for we are many members in one body. All the members do not have the same function, our uniqueness, but our common purpose in Christ. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. When we connect six, five, four, three, two, and one, we start to understand what Paul's original thoughts were at least in my opinion. Paul is saying that the purpose is now to serve the church. Now remember, I don't mean just the local body. I believe it is where we have an invested interest in the invisible body of God that exists everywhere in all places, in many different people. And that's where his purpose is rooted. And that's where our purpose is rooted. There is a strength and, as they say, an augmented, where it just increases, even from 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 the book of Deuteronomy. Moses encourages the people, he says, that when we come together, We are so much stronger. You know, I loved Transformers when I was a kid. The toys more than anything else. And you had some little ones that kind of used to run up, mini-bots or something like that. And they used to come together to create a big robot, which I thought was extraordinarily cool. And there was something in that, like it was more than just the fact that it was... You know, as a big robot, it could just mash up everything. But yeah, as little things, they could, you know, they could easily get pushed around. But it's something that excited me about when people got together. They had so much more potential. And even more so in the fact that they were different from one another. Is what was more interesting... And obviously, Paul's teaching on the uniqueness of the body and the difference of the body in in you know First Corinthians twelve is a lot more expanded. Here it's it's condensed, but it's the same thought. That together we are stronger, and that it is important that we do not we do not differ in doctrine, but we are different in practice of how we administer the things that we do before God. That no one should feel compelled that, you know, I should be a singer or I should be a teacher if that's not where their gifting is. That they should be encouraged where they're at. So that the weight of what the world does, which is says, be like me to be accepted, you know. And the early church, man, all it, all it really came down to, as Paul said it, whether you're a Roman or a Greek, he just wasn't interested in making people into Jewish people, which is quite evident through his letters. He was more interested in, do you believe the same thing that I believe? If you don't, let's get down, let's get there. And then he never compelled a Roman to live as a Jew. And he rebuked people for doing so. Again, we come back to that whole issue of be who you're going to be. But let's think the same. So these come together to make something stronger. You know, this actually works for good and for bad. We go to the Genesis and we see the people coming together for the Tower of Babel. And God makes a comment in there. Many people use it as as a means to say the Bible can't be true because God seems so human in making such a statement. But he comes down and he looks at the people and he says... Look what happens when men get together. They can do anything. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. That even in wickedness, if we come together, we are stronger. How much more so for coming together for good reasons. Not alienating ourselves, but being a part of the body. men built something that God says, I've got to put a stop to this and make a division. Look at the end of the world, how people come together. Look at what they can accomplish to the point where Jesus Christ comes back and has to put an end. You know, our unity in anything aside from Christ is dangerous. That's what that says. That's what it teaches us. Our unity outside of the will of God is dangerous. Even if your intentions were originally good. Verse 7 and 8 goes on to say, so let me read back from 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Paul's vision of the church functioning in mind of the grace of God that has been given, the great history of salvation that we have inherited as the church, is that we should now go on and serve faithfully the church of God. It's not the denial of personal interests, getting married, having jobs, even that comes into the context of all being to the glory and benefit of God. You know, God requires godly offspring. What better thing for Christian parents to have Christian children so that they grow up in a Christian environment? Even that serves the interest of the Lord. That's why Paul goes on in Second Corinthians to say, you shouldn't be unequally yoked. With an unbeliever? What is the will of God in that area of your life? Do they believe? Will they grow up to know what it is to be a part of at least the visible body of God? To give them a better chance. The will of God is invested in His church. And Paul encourages the diversity of how that is expressed. The diversity of if you're ministering, ministering, help. Where you can help. If it's prophesying, you know, it's interesting. It says if you're prophesying, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Let me just kind of highlight on that gift and its expression because it's highly abused today. Jeremiah kind of laid down a gauntlet to one of the men who, in the times of Israel's imminent destruction, was saying, oh man, it's going to be good. It's going to be fine. We're Israel. We have the temple. It's not going to happen. Jeremiah looks at him and says, yeah, "It's good. Praise God, if that's the truth. But he says, it's very hard to speak good things when bad is obviously all happening around us he says that that takes great faith to kind of say things like that that's big talk i mean if you just pre, you know prophesy destruction man can I mean people can get down to that but jeremiah warns off big talk that doesn't get backed up the person's faith is found lacking It's not good enough to just think I have good intentions for the person. Let me just encourage them by saying something that isn't true. As much as we think it might help, he says, your faith basically will come into question when it doesn't happen. You believe good things for me, brother. Look what's happened. Prophesy in proportion. And this is one of the things that he is saying when we look back to verse 3, is that we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves and we shouldn't think more lowly of ourselves. He says that we should have a reasonable understanding of who we are. Let us not extend our abilities or the perception of our abilities beyond what is right. We should have a reasonable mindset about ourselves. We shouldn't, you know, the two extremes that Satan pushes us to is that he either thinks we think less of ourselves or we think more of ourselves. So we're like a pendulum between conceit and despair. He will never let us be reasonably minded about who we are he will swing us between two extremes all day long. And a reasonable mind is one of the hardest things to find in this society and in any society that has ever lived. Because philosophies and ideas of how we live our lives have always pushed us into one extreme. Whether it be a capitalist, whether it be a socialist, a communist... Ideologies either push us to think less of ourselves or too much of ourselves. And we are stuck between the two extremes. But Christianity seeks, or true Christianity seeks, to focus our mind on who we really are and what our real purpose is. We're invested in one another. So my title, Civilians, Soldiers and mercenaries. Civilians we need not worry about because they represent the world. They are in the world and they are regular people of the world. They are God's children, believe it or not. Soldiers are the invested people of God. They are the ones that defend the nation. They defend the people. They fight for God. They give up their lives for this world even when we don't appreciate it. Like the regular army today. While, we sit, while the world sits in comfy beds we pray, Lord, help this nation. We fight on our knees We fight in our gathering together. We fight in our minds to think of ourselves in a reasonable sense so that when we go out into the world, we can be a light and salt. That we will conduct ourselves as active members, true citizens in that regard of the world. The mercenaries... the people that serve as long as it's expedient how much am I getting paid I'll fight but it has to be in my interest my only loyalty is to myself my only loyalty is to do what serves my best interest I'll fight your war but what's in it for me They're civilians in disguise as soldiers. And they would serve but not at their own cost. The grace of God has been given to us that we might serve the cost being paid by Christ having lived, died and resurrected we arise to the purpose which is to serve God's interest as it were to break back into Eden to be invested in his providential will And not seeing it as a hindrance, not seeing it as like, I am living in God's little box. But to see that being invested in his interest serves our interests. More than if we did it and took it upon ourselves to find ourselves. My message really has just been to encourage us, obviously. Obviously. To be invested, not just in your local body, but to be invested in all God's interests, wherever they lie. Wherever his church is. Even to civilians that will never know him, to serve them faithfully. Paul goes on to talk about serving bosses in these in epistles to, to the Romans. Leaders and rulers, even such as it was Nero, Nero. Who had no love and affection for Christians. Soldiers serve and really don't ask any questions. So let us at least know that the God's general will is His church. And our specific will is going to be revealed in time when we're invested in his interest. It's as simple as that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for truth. Lord, I just want to pray for, for us, the church, Lord, that you are deeply invested in even through Christ already. Lord, while we were yet sinners, while we still railed against you, while we still hated you, you sent Christ to die for us. And we're reminded of that price that has been paid and we are told by Christ himself that we must emulate it. We must follow him in doing so. Lord, we don't do so in arrogance, thinking that we um, have somehow created a new dynasty, a new level of truth or a new, new levels of commitment, Lord. There's nothing that can match your gift. Because, Lord, you stand in a place where you, you didn't need to, Lord. But we need to submit. And we thank you for the person of Christ who submitted to you, to the Godhead, so that we might have life. We thank you for the grace that you have supplied Father, we thank you that as many as are called by you, Lord, will not use it in vain. It will be according to your purpose, that we will live our lives, Lord God. Father, we're never fully Lord, we never fully jump in, Lord, but little by little, as we invest, Lord, I pray that our confidence will grow, to become more and more in tune with you, Lord, to become more and more inclined with your interests in this world, Lord, and not our own interest. So thank you for truth, Lord. I thank you for, our, for your church. I pray we will continue to serve you faithfully here in the local body, Lord, in the local expression. Father, in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name.